All right. Just a reminder. Father Son Camp, April 9th through 10th. Now, I know that there are some people who, because of schedules and work schedules, may not get out there until later on Friday night. And there's a couple of people who said, well, can't get out there Friday night, but I can get out there early, early enough on Saturday morning to have breakfast and enjoy the fellowship and fun and things that we'll be doing out there. So um, let us know if you um, plan to come, whether it's for... Friday night and Saturday or just Saturday morning. And there's a sign-up sheet here or just reply to the email that we, uh, that we sent out. But let some, one of us know so we can get a good head count for the food we're going to take out there. And then also Camparete needs a registrar. This is a volunteer position that entails about 10 hours of work a month during the camp registration season and about two hours a month during the off-season. And if interested, please uh, contact uh, Jeff Phipps. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, uh, walking by the Spirit so that we can uh, worship. Anytime we study the word, we are worshiping the Lord. We worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you are spiritually prepared to study, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can come together, that we have freedom in this country still, that to gather together, to assemble, to study your word, to freely proclaim the truth of your word, and to address every issue in life from your word. Father, we pray that you might continue to grant us that freedom. We are in a serious situation in this nation. We have a nation that has rebelled against you. We have a, a nation that has uh, turned over... Uh, turned themselves over to a false worldview, and the numbers that are serious about their spiritual life, the numbers who are even saved in this nation, are down to a smaller percentage than has ever been true in the history of this nation. And Father, we pray that on the basis of those that are still faithful, those that are focused on your word, sending out missionaries throughout the world, 
as well as support for Israel. Father, we pray that you might continue to strengthen us, that we might change course, that there would be something that would cause this nation to turn back to you. And Father, we know that we just put that into your hands. Now, Father, we pray for us tonight as we study the passage here in in Judges that we would learn to be like the men of Issachar, Issachar in Chronicles that understood the times. And this is a great book to study to understand the dynamics and the pathology of what's going on in our own world today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to uh, Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2 as we're moving forward. And tonight we're going to talk about the slippery slope of compromise. It is not only slippery, but it is often innocuous as we tell ourselves little lies along the way that, well, this really isn't going to matter very much. And, and uh, you know, if it was really bad, I would make a change and uh, things of that nature. A sin nature is tremendous in self-deception, which is part of the arrogant skills. And one of the things that we see here in the first chapters, I pointed out in our previous studies, is the slide that is almost imperceptible at the beginning. And by the time people wake up to the fact that they have uh, compromised and that they have been uh, disobedient and they're no longer on the right side of obedience, it's usually too late. And I wanted to look at briefly at Psalm 1, 1, at a couple of, make a couple of observations there, because what we see here in the first verse is a progression that takes place in the decline of the spiritual person to thinking and living like an unbeliever. The contrast is made so that, as the psalmist writes, he's emphasizing the godly believer, the believer who is walking in fellowship with the Lord. But So he says this in kind of a backwards way. He says, blessed is the man, and then he lists three things. He's going to talk about this progression of walking where there's movement to standing where you're just in place to sitting down and making this your home, making ungodliness your home. So he says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Notice the parallelism at the beginning. It's walking, standing, sitting, and then at the end it's the ungodly, the sinners, and the scornful. So those are synonymously parallel, whereas walking, standing, and sitting are are indicating a... Uh, progression. And what this is showing is the person who is living like an unbeliever is not being transformed by the Word of God. He is letting the opinions of his culture, the opinions of his friends, the opinions of his um, of his peers determine his thinking. He wants to be popular. 
He doesn't want to be going against the grain. He wants to work at that job and keep getting a paycheck. So rather than taking a firm stand with the word, he begins to compromise and he begins to go along and sitting in the corner rather than making a a statement that uh, might raise a question about where his loyalties lie, he just keeps his mouth shut. And he goes from keeping his mouth shut to uh, nodding his head as if he agrees with everything. And then before long, he starts changing his to where he is agreeing, and there's this slow, gradual erosion of values. And that is what has happened culturally with so many, many Christians today. They go to church because they live in a culture, they like the people, they uh, generally like the kind of message that they're getting from the pulpit. They think of themselves as Christians when all they get is a little sermonette for Christianettes that doesn't do a bit of good spiritually because they are not getting fed any any truth. The pablum in, that they are getting is so diluted that it doesn't change their thinking about anything. And so outside of maybe an hour or two on Sunday morning, the rest of the time their friends and colleagues don't notice that there's anything really different about that person. You know, they vote for all the right progressive candidates because really they're going to a progressively evangelical church. And so they have already lost the battle because the battle takes place between the ears. And if they don't have the stamina, the fortitude, the doctrine to be steadfast and to be strong, then they're going to just fall apart and they will have a veneer of Christianity that will wash away fairly uh, quickly. This is what the believer is not to do. And if he does this, then he will not experience the blessing of God. If he he walks with the Lord, then he will... uh, he will experience the blessing of God. And so that walk is described then in verses 2 and 3. In contrast to walking, standing, and sitting in the thinking and the life of the unbeliever, which frankly is the pigsty of the prodigal son, uh, he has delight in the Lord. Now that's a great word, delight. It's something he's excited about, something he enjoys. He looks forward to what he is going to learn when he uh, gets goes to Bible class, goes to Sunday school, goes to church, and begins to read the Bible and listen to the Bible taught and learning about various things. And he delights in the law of the Lord. And before long, he, his delight is daily because he will read his Bible every day, memorize Scripture, think about what he is reading, and that's what is meant by meditating. In his law, he meditates day and night. It begins to shape his thinking, his values, and it gives him wisdom and insight into what is going on in the world around him. The result is he will prosper he will be strong. His, he should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water rather than being out in the desert and being shriveled up because there's no nourishment. He's going to, his leaves will be green. He will grow. He will be a source of shade for others. 
He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, he shall prosper. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to get rich. This isn't talking about the heretical false gospel of the uh, of the prosperity gospel people. It's talking about his soul. He will prosper in his thinking, in his life. He will develop a godly character. He will be able to have capacity to appreciate the things of life. And then when there are difficulties and he comes across the storms of life, then he's going to know how to handle them and he will be strengthened. And he walks by the Spirit. So he has and prays for what we've been studying on uh, Sunday morning in Ephesians uh, three fourteen through 16. He prays that he will be strengthened in his inner man by the Holy Spirit because that's the only strength that matters. But for the unbeliever, of course, there is eternal accountability in terms of God's judgment at the great white throne and eternity in the lake of fire. But for the believer who thinks and lives like the unbeliever, there's also divine discipline in time. There will be a loss of happiness and joy They will be dominated by fear, worry, anxiety about especially what is going on today uh, with the pandemic and shifts in government and uh, the economy, all of these different things. And there's the promise of God that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are a member of God's royal family, which is true about every single believer, then God will bring discipline into your life to get your attention to come back to him. This is the admonishment of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, because the people to whom he is writing are those that are on the verge of throwing away their Christianity and going back into Judaism. And he says, he quotes from Proverbs three eleven to 12, which says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Maybe if you're not going through divine discipline, you're not really a child of God, but maybe you wouldn't recognize it if it came your way because what happens when you uh, reject God as a believer and you're living and walking in darkness, you don't really have any spiritual perception after a while. Verse 7 says, if you endure chastening, that means if you respond properly, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? You see, when we look at Psalm 1, uh, it's really talking about what the New Testament describes in Romans 12.2. The talks about the believer who is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He has a different source of nourishment, and he has different surroundings than the unbeliever or the believer living like an unbeliever. And Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed. And the word there is a word that it has to do with being pressed into the mold. Don't 
be shaped by the thinking of the world around you. And what we see today is in movie after movie after TV show, they are uh, they're all genuflecting at the altar of critical race theory and at the altar of cultural Marxism and social justice. And that message goes out in subtle ways again and again and again. And what that does is if you do not have the strength in your soul to recognize what you're hearing, then this is going to pressure you because you see this all the time. This is what everybody is thinking. This is what everybody is talking about. This is what makes you accepted by your peers. And if you aren't walking this way, then uh, if you work for a major corporation, then you are going to be, uh, you could possibly be in trouble and possibly even uh, lose your job or you won't get a promotion simply because you are not going along with all of this thinking. And I have read a number of articles just in the last few weeks talking about how major corporations, we've seen it with Coca-Cola, we've seen it with Disney, we've seen it with many, many others that have completely given themselves over to the cultural Marxism of the day. And they are uh, they're letting this impact all of their policies, all of their employee policies, all of the ways in which uh, they want uh, the culture in their company to operate. And so as a believer, you have to look in the mirror and say, how far will I go with this? when it begins to shape my life. And where's what are the danger points? When will I go too far? And what must I do to protect myself? Because the last thing I want to do is wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and realize I, I, I'm thinking like an unbeliever, living like an unbeliever, and I'm really miserable. When I was in seminary, I got a job that I thought would be a good job. It was, and this was some 40 years ago, and I was going to be able to make about 17 or $18 an hour. But there were some aspects about it which I thought would lead to compromise. And I had to wrestle with it. And I had to say, I, I just can't do it. I can't take that job because I think that down the road uh, there are going to be conflicts, and if uh, and I just can't put myself in that situation, and so I knew I could not take that job. And uh, and that's the way it is in life. We live in a world that's the devil's world, and often there are policies now, and it's much, much worse now than it ever was uh, 40 years ago. But you could see the handwriting on the wall. We are not to be pressed into the mold, shaped by the thinking of the world, but transformed. Uh, have our thinking completely overhauled. That means that we need to understand more and more what it means to have a biblical worldview because that's the framework that is built by, by the teaching of God's word in your soul so that you come to understand what it means that if you believe in a that Everything is created by a triune God who is both infinite and personal. Then that is going to change the way you think about values and knowledge. You're, you're going to understand that what you know is ultimately derived from the Scripture 
And the scripture establishes its authority over everything you think and how you think about things. And it's going to shape your values. And if you're not, then Satan has uh, a thousand different uh, variations of his worldview that rejects the presence of God uh, uh, to the point of either atheism or agnosticism or just God is just some little old man up in the sky and he really isn't involved in things and really doesn't matter. And so God, or they'll have the modern psychological view that God wants you to be happy. Now, happiness is defined by your mental attitude and not by God's not by God's righteousness or justice. So God wants you to be happy. So it's fine for you to get involved in uh, whatever it might be simply because God wants you to be happy. And what that, that excuse is used to uh, rationalize all sorts of immorality today, that God really wants you to be happy. And, of course, happiness is defined in your, terms of your personal pleasure in whatever ever area of your sin nature is involved. So as believers, we are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think about this. In the ancient world, they are surrounded by the pagan culture that's just as hostile to God as our culture is. And they, they saw it everywhere. They saw it in the, in the mosaics that were on the floor in public buildings or in the public baths. They saw it in the uh, decorations on the wall. They saw it in the, they just heard it in the conversation of the people around him and what they did in their spare time and uh, the pressure to be involved in the pagan uh, worship and in the early years of Christianity, it got bad two or three times in the Roman Empire, where the uh, the emperor recognized that he needed the loyalty of everyone. He had great suspicions about these people called Christians, and so everyone had to sacrifice and say that that the Caesar Caesar was Lord. And if you didn't do that, then you risked arrest and persecution and being thrown into the uh, Colosseum where perhaps you would be attacked by wild animals or they, they would um, put you in a situation where you would be attacked and executed by uh, gladiators. And there are just some horrendous stories that are written about how believers responded. I mean, they're horrendous in terms of the suffering, the torture, the way in which they were killed. But the way in which they handled it is just marvelous. Their focus on the Lord, their recognition that this was their way to give a testimony, tremendous testimony to those around them on the difference that it made if you had a close relationship with God and you understood that your sins were forgiven. And so they faced this with, with tremendous poise. They tra- uh, faced this with a relaxed mental attitude. And some of the things they did, they, they would go to their death. Some of them would be burned at the stake and they would sing hymns to the glory of God. They would... Uh, preach the gospel from the uh, fr- from uh, the the fiery flames, and it, it's just remarkable. And God gives a grace in those times 
uh, so that they could do that. And their testimonies were so great. They're called martyrs. And the reason they're called martyrs is the Greek word martyreo means to give a testimony. And so they gave their their testimonies, and it's just remarkable. But these are not the ones that that uh, compromised. Now, there were those who compromised. There's, there are those who gave up other Christians and who did, who uh, went down and thought, well, nobody is going to care if I sacrifice to Caesar. I don't really meet it. God knows what's in my heart. So they would, uh, they would compromise, but then they would realize that it was known and they were not allowed to come back in fellowship with the church. And they had to undergo some church discipline because of the fact that they did not stand with the body of Christ in uh, standing for the truth. And so, uh, so the old, the new, both Old and New Testament emphasize the importance of not compromising, not giving in, no matter no matter what the uh, pressure might be. Now, in the last few lessons as we've looked at the first chapter of Judges, we've seen that Israel is facing some serious problems. And just by way of review, we recognize that Israel had a government that was established by God within a legal document called a covenant. Now that's going to become important in these first five verses of of chapter 2 because uh, the angel of the Lord will appear to them and remind them that God had told them in Deuteronomy, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Uh, You shall tear down their altars. And rather than um, do that and maintain their covenant with God, they abandoned uh, their covenant with, with God. And so they, which was the law, we talk about the law of Moses, we talk about the Torah, the Mosaic law, and that was the law that God had given them so that as far as a law, a system of law and government within uh, the devil's world, this was a perfect system of government. And yet they did not obey the law. They rejected the law. They didn't see, well, that doesn't sound like uh, that, that fits, my, fits common sense. So they failed to uh, fully and consistently, consistently apply the law. Now, I've had some conversation with some people who misunderstand the law in different ways, but one of the ways that people misunderstand it is because they think of the law only in terms of its perversion under the system of the Pharisees. And so say, see, it was just legalistic. It wasn't right. Well, that's not what the Bible says. In Romans seven twelve, it says, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So God's evaluation of the Mosaic law was that it was perfect, it was just, and it was good. But it what made Israel very different from everybody else. And like a lot of people, they just did not want to uh, be different from everybody else. But the government was set up as a theocracy, a true theocracy. Now, you'll hear people today on the left who will criticize Christians and say they just want to establish a theocracy. Everything that comes out of their mouth is just propaganda and hostility toward 
Christianity, and it doesn't matter uh, what it is that we actually believe. Uh, they're just throwing out everything as radically wrong as they can to try to get it to stick because the unlearned and the uneducated and the untrained will will believe it, that that's true. And I have a book at home that was recommended to me by a, a believer uh, who's fairly mature, and I, I, there were parts of it that I didn't, ha- I didn't have the frame of reference to understand. But one section I did, and that was what this writer, who was a previous member of the uh, Bush administration, had to say about the religious right. And it was a caricature and a misrepresentation. I knew and have known many of the men whose names were mentioned there, and it was a complete distortion of their position because underlying everything in our culture and both on both sides of the aisle is generally a hostility to the truth. It is a rejection of the truth and a suppression of the truth. Last time... We went through, I went through a series of verses from Deuteronomy showing exactly what God's command was. And in, let me go over a couple of them as we get ready to get, dig into the second chapter. In Deuteronomy 7.2, God gives instructions for their warfare. He says, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. And I pointed out that this is a Hebrew grammatical construction that repeats the verb as as an imperfect tense plus as an infinitive, and it indicates something that is in, that it intensifies it. You shall certainly conquer them, and I mean you shall certainly or totally destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy. Chesed don't don't have, but in this case it's it's a false mercy. It's a false compassion. Uh, towards the enemy because God has already told them that they are to completely annihilate them. Uh, Verse 3, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son or take their daughter for your son. What, What they're saying is God is saying you can't assimilate with them. You can't live with them as neighbors. And in verse 4, he says, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars. You need to destroy their religious foundation because that will infect you with a false worldview. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. You see, God knew what he was doing when he gave Israel the law. He knew exactly what would happen, but he gave it to them as a test to see if they were going to be obedient. He always intended for them to have a king, but he had to test them to see if they would follow him as a king. And that was the real issue. When we got to 1 Samuel 8, as we've studied it many times, that when the elders of Israel came together and then they came to Uh, They came to Samuel, and they said, Samuel, we don't want your sons to reign over us. You're about to die, so we want to have a king like everybody else. That was the problem. They didn't want to have a king like God wanted. They wanted to have a king like all of the other other nations. And And God makes it clear to Samuel afterwards that they weren't rejecting Samuel. 
They were rejecting God. It's a hostility toward God. And so we can say the same thing today about what is happening in our nation, is that those who are uh, not wanting a Judeo-Christian worldview structure where law is foundational, where the law is the ultimate authority and the rule of law is that which sets the United States of America apart from it, almost every other country, but they, they don't want that because that comes out of a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so they are rejecting that idea of government. But God instituted government back in Genesis chapter 9, uh, 1 through 13. He establishes government when he established uh, capital punishment. And the purpose of government was to restrain sin, something that had not been in place prior to the flood of Noah. In fact, in the church history course that we've been, I've been teaching on Monday nights, last night we went through uh, the theology of, of what took place in the high Middle Ages in the Roman Catholic Church and some of the major uh, thinkers in, at that time, one of whom was Thomas Aquinas, and he wrote quite a bit about government and about politics, and he said that government is the result of sin. The purpose of government is to restrain sin and to mitigate its consequences. And so political organization is necessary in this world in order to provide protection for those in the nation. So this idea that government is instituted by God and is designed to restrain sin, not to enable sin. Liberty has been redefined as antinomianism in the last uh, 40 years, 50 years, since the 60s, and that's not what liberty is at all. Liberty is the freedom to be responsible and take responsibility for your own life. It is not the uh, uh, freedom to do whatever you want to do without fear of any negative consequences. And law is the foundation of every civilization, and it may be bad law, it may be good law, it may be bad government or good government, but the purpose of government in every civilization, whether you're talking about tribes or whether you're talking about uh, small countries or islands, they all recognize that there are a absolutes. Even the most hardened, horrible criminal has a value system. Have you ever thought about that? The irony that you have with, I mean, you, you look at the radical left with Antifa and these other organizations that are wanting to tear down uh, the United States. Well, they have value systems. If you, if you say certain things or behave certain things, they're going to kick you out of their organization. They have, they have a value system. I was talking to a pastor recently who's had uh, uh, ministry at times in in a in a prison would go into the um, uh, go into the area where they were on death row, and he would talk to them. He said it was so funny. These guys all have value systems. You'd have some guy sitting there, and he would point to some guy over in the corner who looked mean and ugly and horrible, and he'd say, "Now that guy's really bad." He said, now, I'm bad. I killed a 12-year-old girl, but he's really bad. He killed three 80-year-old ladies. Uh, 
So they have this perverted scale of values, but nobody has a value system, is without some value system. At some point, everybody's going to come up and say, well, something is right or something is wrong. And if you don't have the Bible as your basis, then it's ultimately going to lead to some kind of, of disorder. So as we've read in Psalm 1 and also in, Psalm, in uh, Romans 1, 18 uh, to 23, we know that the trend of the unbeliever who's rejected God is that he suppresses truth in unrighteousness. Now, this is why he's called a fool. He's not called a fool as some sort of, of insult. He is called a fool because he's living divorced from reality. That wisdom is based on living in accord with God's laws and the way God has structured reality. But when you are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, the end result is always instability. That's what's described there in Psalm 1, is they become like the, the, the tree who is uh, blown all around and there's instability and uncertainty because there's no real genuine anchor in absolute truth. And the result of that is what we see in the book of Judges, that the leadership cannot think objectively. It's because they get to the point where they reject the law of Moses they are their culture becomes inherently unstable. They are defeated by their enemies. They are uh, made slaves to their enemies, and uh, everything falls apart. When you reject the word of God, there's no basis for freedom anymore, and all you're left with is groups that vie for power. That's all they want is power so that they can do whatever uh, they wish. And as that instability develops uh, across the board, then we see things that are similar to what happens in the three stages of divine discipline that God uh, revealed to uh, in the Mosaic Law to Israel. And so Israel is going to experience these in, uh, in this book. And there will be military failures. There will be poverty, economic disaster, which is the result of being overrun. We look at, at the book, uh, Judges 6, uh, which deals with Gideon. And Gideon is hiding to thresh out his, his crop because he knows that if the Midianites know that he's doing it, they'll come and take it all. And so they leave just enough for them to survive. So it's an economic disaster. But we also see that in the increase in paganism, there is a, a role distortion for males and females. And there's gender confusion. And men don't know who they are as men and can't respond as men. And women can't respond as women because they don't have any idea. Paganism distorts... Um, distorts the gender identity. And today we have all sorts of confusion uh, in gender. Women want to be men. Men want to be women. We have parents who commit child abuse by allowing their uh, children to go through gender reassignment therapy. Uh, there's marital failures. There's educational bra uh, breakdown. There's criminality that is on the increase and there's all kinds of economic consequences 
for all of this. And all of this is portrayed in the book of Judges as Israel demonstrates their disobedience to God. And all of this, these, these things that we see are just the symptoms of the problem. And the problem is the culture is made up of a majority of people who have rejected God, rejected the Bible, and they're becoming more and more hostile uh, to the Bible. Man cannot solve his problems apart from God. When, he does, when man rejects God, the result is always a loss of freedom because first and foremost, they are increasing their slavery to their own sin nature. And that is going to lead to greater and greater instability. And it's going to destroy the integrity of the leadership and the integrity of the priesthood in in Israel. And this is exactly what is seen in these verses like we have in Deuteronomy 7, 2, and 3, that they're told to conquer and they're told to utterly destroy them and they compromise on that. And that's exactly what we're going to see and in, in, um, as we go through the book of Judges, uh, Deuteronomy seven sixteen and 18 says, You shall destroy all the peoples. Your eyes shall have no pity on them. Several times God says that. You shall not have pity on them. And because there is a pseudo-compassion in Scripture. And when God says it's time to clean house, you've got to clean house, and you can't feel sorry for those that are coming under God's wrath. Uh, and God says, you shall not be afraid of them. So as we go through Judges, as I pointed out, these first three chapters are to, to three six one one to 3.6 is the introduction that lays out these cycles. And it's describing how Israel goes from spiritual victory to being worse than the Canaanites. It starts with incomplete obedience in little things that they don't think will matter very much. And then it increases as they continue to compromise, which leads to failure and the various cycles of, of discipline. We look at the paganization of the leadership as it goes from Othniel, who's the best, and each gets progressively worse as the, the, of the ones that have anything said about them till you get down to Samson, who's the best, and then we see the paganization of the priests and the paganization of the people. So we are in this particular section. Now, one of the things that I want to do is sort of trace out, by way of review very rapidly, what we've seen in terms of this progress, this, this progress of, of compromise that has taken place uh, in, in the uh, Jewish culture. And it started innocuously. Remember with, with, um, with the tribe of Judah, we have more said about them in the first uh, uh, 21 or 20 verses here. It's all about the tribe of Judah. And they, find, they, they, um, they capture the Lord of Bezek, Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and then they punish him by cutting off his thumbs and his toes. Now, that doesn't sound like a really bad thing. Now, I want to correct one thing I said the other night. I said that you don't have dismemberment in the Mosaic Law. There's one example of dismemberment in the Mosaic Law, and I want to correct that. In Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12, uh, 
uh, it states that if two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the other one. So you've got two men who are fighting each other and she wants to help her husband. So she comes in and grabs the other man by his private parts. And the penalty is if she does that, you need to cut off her hand. Now, why in the world is there such a harsh penalty for that? Well, this is a tough passage because it really doesn't tell us that. What's interesting is the passage seems to be sandwiched in between a couple of couple of laws, and the one that precedes it has to do with leveret marriage. What happens when a man dies before he has children? And so in order to preserve his line, the emphasis is on uh, the fact that God has promised to make them make them fruitful and for their line to continue, and if he dies before he has children, then the his his brothers are supposed to one of them uh, take his his wife as their wife, and the first child that is born is given his the the brother the dead brother's name, and he is raised as the heir of that line so that that line continues. God is concerned about. Uh, continuing uh, these lines and to providing uh, children and grandchildren and male heirs. And so what we have here is a situation where perhaps in in a fight like this that uh, he could be injured in such a way not being able to have any children, and so the suggestion is made that that is why this is so serious. I also think that because of the way in which the scriptures define certain things about uh, the human body and sexuality, that this is, this is a gross sin. I think there may be more to it than what meets the eye, but it's a gross sin of um, uh, uh, bringing a person into spiritual uncleanness so that it's necessary to remove the hand from the body. But that's the only example in the scripture of uh, physical mutilation as a punishment for violating law. And that stands in contrast to the Code of Hammurabi, to just about every law code in the ancient world where most of the crimes were punished through some form of, of, uh, uh, of mutilation. So there's a progression that goes through here where Judah just is... It, their punishment on Adonai Bezek is they're cutting off his thumbs and toes. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. They're not going into the uh, false uh, temple of an idol. They're not not doing and committing any any gross sins. It seems like, well, everybody, all the other uh, tribes and people seem to be using that as a way of disarming their opponents. So that doesn't seem so bad. But that is not the way that they were supposed to handle things as the uh, people of God who were set apart for, for God's purpose. And then the next thing we read is that Benjamin fails to complete the mission uh, that God gave them to capture the Jebusites. Uh, Judah started it, defeated them, burned the city, but they didn't carry through that. That was left to Benjamin. Benjamin uh, didn't do that, so they compromise, and they end up compromising and living 
with the Jebusites. But I want you to notice that that in the order of events in these first two or three examples, the, the Canaanites or the Jebusites are living with the, the, the Jewish tribe so that the dominant um, population is the Jewish tribe. So Ephraim then fails and uh, to capture Gezer, and so uh, uh, the Gezerites live among the Ephraimites, Zebulun fails, and they put the Canaanites in their area under tribute. They enslave them. Uh, then there's a shift that occurs when you get down to uh, 132. Uh, so the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. Now, in that phraseology, who's the dominant people? It's the Canaanites. Not only do they fail to defeat them, but now they become the minority population. Um, they did not drive them out. Naphtali is not able, in verse 33, to drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And they dwelt among the Canaanites, so they're still uh, the dominant force, even though they're able to put those in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anat uh, under tribute to them. They're still the minority uh, population. So with their compromise, each situation gets worse and worse until finally the Danites aren't able to defeat the Amorites at all, and the Amorites force them out of their territory, which is in the, the coastal plains uh, of Israel there around what we now refer to as Tel Aviv and down to Ashkelon. So they're forced back up into the hills, and that's going to have consequences that will come up later in Judges 17 and 18. And what we see is compromise begins with small things, but it leads to more significant things, to big things and big areas of disobedience. And when government and corporations, like we see today, come along and start dictating, and universities begin to dictate uh, what words you can use, and what, uh, what methods you can use, then, uh, then that is the development and rise of a fascism. And this is happening in numerous places. They say that uh, recently I've read several articles and I know of situations where people who are writers are given lists. Uh, they have corporate meetings and they're given lists of words that they can no longer use. Now, I've looked up some of these words on the Internet. You can do it as well, and you can just do a search on, on politically incorrect words. And in terms of the, the list that I looked at, a lot of them were rather archaic idioms and things of that nature. And you may think, well, that doesn't really matter. I don't use that kind of language anyway. And I'm not talking about using really egregious language. It's obviously racist. I'm just talking about using various idioms that we probably use uh, most, of, most of our lives or heard most of our lives, and now they're not only canceling the books that have images uh, and they're going out of print and being destroyed, they're into book burning now. Uh, that's what Amazon is doing. It's just the same thing that the Nazis did and the Soviets did and many other cultures did is they're prohibiting people from access to to certain books because they want to control, when you control language, 
you control thinking. And when you control the thinking, then you can control the masses and, and then you can get them to do what you want to do. Now, this isn't just the word of some uh, conservative, white, heterosexual, uh, male Christian. It's the word of someone who certainly wasn't most of that, and that's George Carlin. And George Carlin was a well-known uh, comedian, if you don't know who he was, and he was uh, very interesting, and he had a lot of different things to say, and his language certainly was over the top. But he made the statement that political correctness is fascism pretending to be manners. That is a great statement. Because what we're talking about in the use of much of this language is just having good manners in the way you talk about certain things, especially around uh, certain people. And not using, uh, and it's never good to... Uh, use racist terms, harsh, negative, racist terms around uh, certain people. That is that is foolish. It's bad manners. But you can't legislate manners. You can't legislate good sense. But that's exactly what's happening in this kind of a situation. And then something came across my email this morning that I just I just couldn't believe this. This is where it goes. See, you start off. 30, 20, 30 years ago, making certain assumptions about where you're starting to just tweak the definition of racism. And every five or six years, it kind of gets tweaked a little bit more until now you hardly recognize what it is. But this morning, I read this uh, headline in the um, international news on the uh, postmillennial.com page. And I understand that it came out in a, n- a number of other sources a couple of days ago. Oxford University staff proposed to rethink teaching sheet music because of its complicity in white supremacy. Now, you think that would have had any, any play 30 years ago? No. But it's getting a lot of traction now. What's happened in between? Well, they started with compromise. They started with a failure to recognize what was happening and where it was going to lead. And so there's just this gradual, gradual erosion. Y'all know the whole illustration of uh, you can put a a frog in a pot of, of uh, try to put him in a pot of uh, boiling water or hot water, and he'll he'll jump out. But if you put him in a pot of cold water and then gradually, very, very slowly turn up the heat, he'll boil. Uh, to death. Well, that's this gradualism that has taken place in our culture. So that things that 30 or 40 years ago we would have thought were absolute insanity, total irrationality, are now being seriously considered by the intellectual elites of the world. And so I have, uh, you know, they, they want to remove, um, but it, it goes deeper than just changing. Everything they they are making this claim that musical notation is now considered too colonial, uh, while Beethoven and Mozart and music curriculums in general are believed by professors to have complicity in white supremacy. Now, what does classic all classical musicians? What do they have in common? 
most of them, if not all of them, wrote uh, wrote things that were related to Scripture. They were, if they were not personal Christians, they were writing requiems. They were uh, writing uh, things like Handel, who was a very strong believer, is Messiah. Brahms was a very strong believer. Bach would sign off his work, Solideo Gloria. What made the high water mark of music in the history of the world is what was developed in the period from about the 1600s to the early 1900s. It's not that some of that new within that vein isn't coming along, but it was an outgrowth of a Judeo-Christian worldview, and music in Western civilization developed in the churches. It developed in the cathedrals. It developed in the Middle Ages. It developed with the idea that we need to sing in order to praise God. And so the music became uh, more and more intricate and more and more sophisticated, all driving towards a purpose. Every time you read a a negative critique of anything related to Western Europe and Western civilization, it is just a veiled attack on the worldview that produced it, which was Christianity. And the one thing you never hear them give credit for is that it was white, male, Evangelical, white, heterosexual, male, evangelical Christians who loved God who were the ones responsible for ending slavery. If it weren't for conservative, Bible-believing Christian men, we would still have slavery. It, were, it was evangelicals who were driving the abolition of slavery in Britain, the abolition of slavery and the slave trade, the abolition of slavery uh, in the United States. And, and, it's, and that's ignored and denied today. But if you come in and you remove the influence of the Bible and you remove the influence of, of spiritually mature men and women from the culture, it will absolutely devastate the culture. And that's comparable to what happened uh, during the time, of, uh, the time of the judges. So the argument today is that musical notation is believed by these people to be a colonialist representational system and our goal is to decolonize music studies, so we have to get rid uh, of sheet music, and uh, we have to replace all uh, the notation, all the notations, and everything, because this is quote structurally centers white. It is because this too structurally centers white European music. It means that um, uh, students should not be taught how to play the piano or how to conduct orchestras are numerous other things that are related to uh, excellent music. And so, again, this is just another plank that is going to be, uh, going to uh, eviscerate our culture. So we have to recognize that all of this represents this pattern of compromise, pattern of compromise that started uh, just like in, in, Judges started with small, seemingly innocuous decisions that may not have been all the way out of bounds, but they were certainly starting to run down the sidelines and just barely stepping out at some points. So we come now to 
the first verse in Judges 2.1. And this reads, Then the angel of the Lord, the uppercase Lord, indicates God, Yahweh, the uh, and the reference to the God of the covenant with Israel. Then the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Bohem and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So the question is, who is the angel of the Lord? Who is the angel of Yahweh? Well, first of all, we have a big clue here because in the passage it says, I led you up from Egypt. And you could go back and take time to read through Exodus after they left Egypt. The numerous times where it talks about it is Yahweh who is leading them. So that tells you that the angel of the Lord isn't an angel, but the angel of the Lord is identified as God, as Yahweh. So as we ask this question, the term in the Hebrew is Malaak Yahweh. Malaak is just the word for messenger, just as angelos is a word for messenger in Greek. And so what we call angels are messengers. That's their primary function is carrying out the will of God. And we are reminded that God's promise to uh, Israel when they came out of Egypt God said in Exodus 23, 20, and 21, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. Now, what does that mean that God's name is in him? Well, we know that the way in which uh, uh, the Hebrew mindset on the name is the name refers to the essence of somebody. Much as we studied on Sunday morning, the idea of glory represents all that makes God important, which is his essence. And so my essence is in him is essentially, that's how, what, how the idiom reads. God is therefore saying that the angel who will lead them is, has the same essence as himself. Now, the first time that the angel of the Lord is mentioned in the Bible is in uh, Genesis 16, uh, 7 through 13. And in this passage, this is uh, after Ishmael has been born to Hagar, and Hagar has been uh, kicked out of the house because Sarah is now pregnant, and Sarah realizes that or Sarah's going to be pregnant, and Sarah realizes that that if she gets pregnant, that there's going to be this jealousy in the in in the house under inside the tent, and that there will be competition between these two uh, sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Um, so uh, she has Abraham kick Hagar out. So she's left, and she doesn't know where she's going to go. And the angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. I love the way the Bible defines precisely the geography so that you can get out a map and you can go find it. It's not like other religious books where where it has nothing to do with actual space-time history. It's located at a place that you can go find today. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. 
The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. So whoever this is, it's someone who has great authority to be able to tell uh, Hagar exactly what to do, knowing that Sarai and Abraham will have to go along with it. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, and makes this kind of a promise. It's only the kind of a promise God can make. I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said, Behold, you are with child, you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man, and he and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence uh, uh, of all of his brethren. So in this passage, uh, now the angel of the Lord is predicting, telling what the future will be. But the real clincher comes in verse 13. Then she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. Notice, it doesn't say the name of the angel of the Lord. Moses is writing, he knows that the angel of the Lord is Yahweh himself, and she calls the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. She knows he is omniscient, and so that name is then attached uh, to to this well. And so there's later passages that talk about this well, people going there. The well is now called Be'er uh, Lahairoi in the Hebrew. The next time the angel of the Lord appears in Genesis 22 has to do with uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. And so uh, the Lord tells Abraham to take Isaac, his son, his only son, to the mountains of Moriah and there to offer him as a burnt offering to God. And so then uh, God stops him just as he's about to take Isaac's life. And the angel of Yahweh calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. So I said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And then here we get the punchline. Abram, Abraham called the name of the place Yahweh Yireh, or in the King James said Jehovah Jireh. It is the Lord will provide. And so he sees that the angel of the Lord, he calls him Yahweh. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And then in Exodus 3, uh, 2 through 4, uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame of fire, the burning bush. And then in verse 4, it says, so when the Lord saw that he turned aside, so the when it says the Lord saw, it's referring to the angel of the Lord, calling the angel of the Lord, uh, the Lord. Same thing happens with Gideon. The angel of the Lord came to Gideon under the terebinth tree in Ophrah. And uh, then in verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Gideon. And in verse 13, Gideon says, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then how has all this happened to us? And then we go to verse 14, then the Lord turned to him. So he starts off having a conversation 
with the, the person who's called the angel of the Lord. And then by verse 14, the writer just says he's the Lord and calls the angel of the Lord the Lord. Uh, then the Lord turned to him and said, and then later uh, Gideon is going to say, Lord, let me go get um, some wood and I will get, bring a sacrifice for you. And in every other place in the scripture where someone tries to worship an angel, the angel stops it. But here the angel of the Lord waits for him to offer him a burnt offering. And then at the end of Judges, we have Manoah, who is the father of Samson. And the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah and his wife to announce the fact that she will become pregnant and give birth to uh, Samson, and he is to be a Nazarite from birth. And so Manoah says to the angel of the Lord, let's detain you and we'll prepare a goat for you. And the angel of the Lord says, though you detain me, I won't eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah doesn't know that this person talking to him is the angel of the Lord. And then we skip down and we see in verse 17 that Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, and the and he says, um, what is your name, that when uh, your words come to pass, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord says, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? In the Hebrew, this is a word, pele, that only refers to, to God. Uh, this is the term for the Messiah. He will call, be called wonderful, counselor. But that word wonderful is a term that's only applied in a title for God, and that's in Isaiah 9, 6. And so then in Judges 13, 21, the angel of the Lord leaves and appears no more to Manoah. And he says to his wife, we're going to die because we have seen God. He knows the angel of Yahweh is God. And so again and again, we see this identification of God with the angel of the Lord. He is not a regular angel. He is fully divine. But then we come to Zechariah 1.12 through 14, and the angel of the Lord says to God, O Lord of hosts, uh-oh, now the angel of the Lord isn't God. The angel of the Lord is speaking to the Lord of hosts. So here we see that the angel of the Lord is a different personage than God the Father, that he is He's identified as God in all of these other passages, but now in Zechariah we see that he is a distinct personage from God. He is speaking to the Lord of hosts. And then the Lord answers him in verse 13. And so this substantiates the fact that you have the angel of the Lord is a distinct personage from God the Father. And it was this angel of the Lord who led the Israelites out of the wilderness and led them into the promised land and gave them victory over the Canaanites to begin with. So we'll come back and talk about that next week, having laid the groundwork that we now know that the angel of Yahweh is indeed the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ who appeared in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord and so this is, most theologians will call this a theophany, an appearance of God, but this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, so more accurately it should be called a Christophany. 
It is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ appearing to the people. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that there are consequences to our decisions and that we ought not compromise, and that when we compromise, it weakens us spiritually, it weakens our character, and when you have a critical mass of people compromising with truth and suppressing the truth, then the only result is disaster unless you intervene. And we pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of these people to the truth of your word, to the disastrous road that they are on. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.